Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. How are you doing? I am wonderful. How are you? I am doing well. It's Monday. (laughs) So it's always a Monday. (laughs) It is a Monday. Um, And happy Black History Month. That is also we find ourselves here in February 2020. So yeah, hashtag Black History Month 2020. We are here. And I just wanted to start off by saying and kind of prefacing that we're going to have an opportunity in this conversation, in this episode, to listen to one of my Black history heroes who is doing work at engaging in the movement of dismantling racism, white supremacy, oppression with regards to the criminal justice system here and now in real time. So that's something that I'm really excited to share with our audience today. I'm really excited about people hearing from our guest today because she is amazing. And her story and the work that she's doing to educate people, to fight injustice, to change laws as it pertains to incarceration, bringing Mm -hmm. awareness to what women face in particular Mm -hmm. within the prison system. Like this is an amazing episode. And I love this idea that we are highlighting somebody who is here and now. And in this idea that black history doesn't have to be about the past, but about the people who are doing the work now. And for that, Brittany White is just an amazing, amazing human being. She is. She is. She's a leader and a visionary. And I I just think that we have so much that we can learn from her. One of the things I was curious to ask you about is how has your celebration of Black History Month changed, say, over the last 10 years? Oh, gosh, this is a good story. Um, I, I was raised as a preacher's daughter. And my father was a minister in the AME Zion denomination, and that is a historically black denomination. So Black History Month was a very significant time of the year in our home, but also in our church and church was such a big part of our life. So I know, I remember growing up, Black History Month was full of programs and memorizing you know, um, speeches or, or parts of, of, of books written by famous Black authors and a lot of celebration, a lot of different events during Black History Month. So then I would get older, become an adult, go into a corporate environment and a very white-centered corporate environment in the fitness world, and Black History Month was non-existent. And I actually, honestly... Because my relationship with my family has been distant, um, distant in some ways and fractured in other ways, I lost touch with the significance of Black History Month, honestly, in my life earlier in my adulthood, I'll say. Uh, and my, my connection to church was also different as I, you know, when I was an adult and had my children and they were younger in the home. So, I mean, I, I can't say that I have consistently celebrated um, Black History Month 
the way that I used to when I was younger. But I will say that over the past several years, past, I don't know, three, four, five years, um, eh, maybe not even that long, it has become a, a part of my life again. But even now, more recently, over the past two to three years, it is more about it, it, Black history is a part of every day. Now it is more of me um, living out that I've got to re-educate myself because it's really unacceptable the amount of history that I don't know um, based on what schools have taught us um, and, and all of the exclusion uh, of how Black history has played such a major role in society. So all of that to say, it has only been the past couple of years that not only has Black History Month been a thing for me, but it has turned into Black History Month 365, Black History Year. Every day is Black History for me. I am Black History. So that's something yeah. that I have really adopted over the past couple of years. Mm. And do you have any people like the thing that you mentioned is that you are trying to lean into that gap of history and knowledge? Do you have any people or any books that you're really learning from right now that is helping to fill that gap? Yeah, the, the books that come to mind historically that I'm really learning from and getting a lot from right now are um, Stamp from the Beginning. So Dr. Kendi's book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And right now I'm doing a lot of reading on Dr. Angela Davis's work. And so right now I'm reading her book, Are Prisons Obsolete? So those are just mm. a couple of the folks that I'm reading and studying right now. That's awesome. Yeah. So, well, with that, let's just jump in because Brittany has a lot to say and I can't wait to share this with our audience. Enjoy. So I want to welcome Brittany White to the podcast. Hi, Brittany. Hello. How are you? I'm wonderful this morning. How are you, Tina? I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well and I can't wait to introduce you to our audience and to have this conversation. Let me first start out by telling everyone a little bit about you. Brittany is the decarceration manager for Live Free National, which is a campaign of faith in action. That is what you do professionally, but what I feel is most important because when I asked you what you wanted me to share with our listeners, you wanted me to let everyone know that you are a formerly incarcerated Black woman who thinks it's important to talk about women's unique experience within the criminal justice system. So before I get to that, let me back up a little bit because I have to be honest and share with everyone that you are a friend of mine. And, but not only are you a friend and, and have we developed a friendship, you are someone that I truly am inspired by and I look up to. And we have been on the podcast recently talking about Brian Stevenson and his work. And he is someone that I consider to be a, a hero of mine, but I don't know him. So when I think about leadership and inspiration, I think about you. So I want to tell everyone my little story about you and then kind of get into what you do and what you can share with everyone. My wife and I moved back here to Dallas in June of 2019. And so when I got to Dallas, 
the Dallas area, it was important to me to find like-minded people uh, and people that were working on making social change and, and, and making an impact with regards to things that were important to me. Uh, and some of those things involved reducing and ending mass incarceration, reducing money bail, and things like that. So I happened to find you. That's another story. But I remember that I was invited to attend a live free meeting here in Dallas. And I will never forget sitting in that meeting that you were leading and being so completely mesmerized by your presence, your wisdom, your knowledge, and the way that you held space for everyone in that room. It was a room that was uh, full of a diverse group of people, various racial and gender backgrounds, various experiences inside of the criminal justice system. I remember you started that meeting with a faith reflection and our faith reflection was a Jay-Z song. Do you remember that? I remember all things Jay-Z, but <laughs> yes, I I think it's very important to incorporate cultural relevant tools into the work, that we are not robots, that we should prepare our minds and hearts to understand the communities that we choose to engage. And so absolutely, I, I always find Jay-Z as an appropriate tool to do such. But I remember you played the song and then we went around the room talking about what the song meant to us, what we heard in it. And, and that kind of set the tone because here I am, I had just moved here from being a part of an active community of uh, women in particular who were organizing at a very grassroots level to affect change in our local area there in some of the northern suburbs of Atlanta. So I was coming, looking for a place that I felt like I could be a part of, where I could belong, and where I can get involved. And that meeting, I, I have to tell you, I, I was blown away because I learned so much. And you, the way that you explained and broke down our intent, our purpose, the meeting was for, it was open to the community for us to come together as we were putting together a direct action campaign to affect and reduce the mass incarceration numbers in the city of Dallas. And you took us through so plainly and clearly all of not only what our focus goals were going to be, but also breaking down the targets. You explained to us things that I never had an understanding of, such as what was the role of the attorney general? What was the role of the county commissioner, the felony judges, and how we would be strategic in placing and applying pressure to them to get what we want. And for me, I have been in a number of boardrooms and meetings and professional leadership development conferences and workshops. And I had never before experienced the type of leadership that I watched you display in that room where you not only were educational and provided fantastic information, uh, necessary, relevant information to the work that we were doing, but you have a unique ability to make everyone feel seen and heard. That is a gift. And that is what 
drew me to you. So I felt that while we are in this time of everyone is talking about the work of Brian Stevenson because of the the movie Just Mercy that has come out, it was important to me that I share with the Speaking of Racism audience um, a personal hero and leader of mine. And that is, that's you. So just first, thank you for what you have taught me and meant to me. Well, I appreciate that, Tina. You know, you have been a very loyal friend and it's absolutely my honor to do this work. I consider it a privilege to walk in my purpose and basically live out the role of my dream job. A lot of people across this world do this work without compensation and without resources. So I'm very, I count it as a privilege and an honor to walk in this purpose. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. So can you tell us what is a decarceration manager? What what does that mean? And, and what do you do? Yeah, that's just a really fancy title to say that I am a Black woman who wakes up every single day thinking about the ways to liberate Black and brown people in America in particular. And so what we understand from the system of mass incarceration is all of the basics, that America has the largest population of incarcerated bodies. And I don't want to just say that as like a point that I took off of Wikipedia. I want to say it and really drill down for folks to understand that this literally means that America has millions of people that we have not figured out how to help and support. So we have hid them. Mm. And there is a great amount of shame that comes up that comes from that. And so my thought, my purpose in life is to number one, come up with solutions so that people never reach incarceration. So they're never locked away. So this means addressing the factors that feed incarceration, such as failing school systems, lack of access to healthy foods, lack of access to affordable health care, not being able to get a job that pays a livable wage, not living, not being able to have your own home. And you can drill all that down and say not having your dignity as a human being, right? That's what feeds into the pathway of incarceration. Then it's also the policies that govern that incarceration, such as what we saw in the 1994 crime bill and other subsequent laws that preceded and came after that targeted poor Black people in this country and created an entry point into the system of mass incarceration. So overturning those laws and actually trying to bring awareness to the fact that we have created this mess that we find ourselves in. And then it's also the conditions of the prisons, detention centers, and jails themselves. Many of these places that house our loved ones are not fit for human beings. You wouldn't want your dog to live there. The food that they consume, the conditions that they live in, much what we we are seeing in the news right now with the parchment prison in Mississippi, It's just it's just horrendous to think that actual human beings live there. And then the final step, of course, being reentry, understanding that all incarcerated persons do not have a release date that they'll see in their lifetime. But the majority do for so for our loved ones that come back home into the world. What is their state of mind? 
What is their ability to proceed forward in a life of dignity? And how can we best raise their chances of not going back into the system? And so I think about this on a national level with about 28 different federations, um, places across the country that work on these issues, and I lead out their strategy. You know, I think that a lot of people who are looking from the outside in at the criminal justice system. So those of us who have not been directly impacted, some of us recognize that it is a problem, right? Uh, And that is the lens through which I come into this work, just the tremendous concern and not concern, the my rage over how our it is 2020 and we are you know supposed to be this world leader and we can't figure out a way to reduce the number of people that we incarcerate each year. We can't figure or haven't been able to figure out a way to just really make systemic change from the from policy levels. So what has been important to me is that I learn as much as I can. And so to be in the space with you and to be learning from you as not only a directly impacted person, as a formerly incarcerated person, because you share from a perspective that I don't have. And you, as well as others who have had that experience, need to be the ones leading this conversation. So what is it that you feel people need to know as far as how we can get involved and who we should be listening to? when it comes to criminal justice reform issues? Sure, I appreciate that, Tina. I think the genius of the solutions around the issues of criminal justice comes from those who have been in the system themselves. And the reason that's important is because it's one thing to study an issue neutrally, and it's another thing to go through it with first-person experience. It's just a nuance learning that happens in real time is almost to be likened to on-the-job training. Like you can prepare a person with isolated incidents and scenarios, but for that to be your reality is things that I have witnessed and learned that I didn't even realize lived inside of my body. And so, for example, one thing that we did in my previous role Uh, working on bail reform in Dallas at my former organization is we decided to actually do a bailout. And these have become increasingly uh, popular in America with the Color of Change organization bringing a lot of notoriety to the Mama's Day bailout trend where folks go and bail Black women out of jail during the Mother's Day time period here in America. And in the course of us doing that bailout, I think the genius of the organization that I work for now Um, the campaign Live Free National, is that it's not just about engaging justice-impacted people, but it's also preserving their dignity. So what we understood is that once we posted bail for people, we also needed to be immediately prepared to receive them with food, understanding that some of them may not have transportation, that we would need to identify different shelters across the city in case people didn't have physical homes to go to. And that type of detail is just the thoughtfulness that comes from people of faith, but also the genius of people who have been in the system ourselves. And we think about if somebody had bailed me out, how would I like to be received? What were my needs and my lack coming out of jail that immediately needed to be addressed in order for me to actually have a real opportunity to fight against recidivism and going back into that jail? So for people who are wanting to get 
this movement of supporting criminal justice work. Number one, I do so in the faith arena. So I work with a variety of different churches across the country. And so absolutely your church. If you are a person of faith, then my hope is that some type of faith leader within your congregation or system of faith has an avenue for you not to just do direct services like soup kitchens and clothes closets, but actually when the mayor stops by to visit, when the uh, city council person comes and asks you to vote for them, that you have a list of platforms and issues that are particular and unique in your city that you are putting before them and you have a system of accountability to hold them to. I think it's also important to support those who are justice impacted in your community who are leading the work we often find that the people who themselves have been in the system and who are attempting to bring about change are under-resourced and supported. And folks are always welcome to get involved in their local federation if you live in America with uh, Faith in Action. So please go to faithinaction.org and livefreenational.org and look for opportunities to engage in your city. That Those are great resources. So I appreciate you mentioning them because that's something that I think people need to know uh, and, and want to know as far as we are very good at um, saying we want to help and what can we do, but then to take the next steps and find out what it is that, ways that we can be involved. So that's important. So we'll, we'll kind of come back to that because I do want you to share that again. But you mentioned a couple of organizations in addition to Live Free National, who you currently work for. You mentioned Color of Change. You referenced the national bailout as well. Uh, I know, like you mentioned, those organizations are getting a lot of national attention, which, which is excellent. They continue to need our support, our, our donations to raise raise those funds that to be able to uh, bail people out. And we are, we're talking about, well, I won't explain it. I'd love for you to explain when, when you say bailout, can you help people understand what that means um, in terms of our people that we're bailing out? Are, are we saying that they're convicted, they are guilty of a crime? Are we saying that they, can, can you kind of explain the nuance of why the bailout campaigns are so important? Absolutely. So what we understand about the world is that there are two countries in this entire world that use a bail system, the Philippines and the United States of America. And what this bail represents is that when a person is accused of a crime, then the money, then some form of money is exchanged between the government and that person or their support system to incentivize that person to come back and answer or be responsible for these charges. Now, presented without judgment, the thought process behind this is usually that the more severe the crime, the, the higher level of resources which are required for this person's freedom hoping that more money, more resources, it can be your house, for example, that you put up in addition to actual funds, that the person will feel a sense of responsibility to come back and report for whatever the charges alleged are. What is What the problem with this process is that it's very discriminatory towards people who are poor. 
So Tina, if you and I, for example, both are boosters, this is a common term used for people who frequently steal, and we go steal out of a high-end department store, and we're caught together, and we get a $700 bond. And that's saying that for $700, you can put that money up, you can either pay the full amount and then have the money returned to you once you answer for the charges, or you can go to a bonds person. So let's say instead of $700, it's $7,000 that we have as a bond. Typically, a person's family, if using a bail bondsman, pays 10% of that money. So they'll pay like $700. And the bonds person will actually go through the process of putting up the surety uh, insurance process to allow that person to come home. But if I don't have a family and I don't have access to anyone to put up $700 or $7,000 for me, the only difference between you and I is the ability to pay. And so then you are given the favor of being able to be freed. And we understand that when a person is free versus when a person is incarcerated, they're able to prepare a stronger defense for themselves. You can actually go and find and talk to character witnesses. You have the ability and the mobility to move around to prepare a case, whereas that other person, because of their lack of ability to Hey, they are confined to the rules and regulations of that jail. And so they're not able to call on witnesses unless people have the ability to put money on the phone in order to accept their cause. And we know that that is not often the case because if people had the funds to put money on the phone or support that person, they would also be able to put up the money to bail them out in a lot of cases. So that poor person is more vulnerable to enter um, a plea, just to accept the plea in exchange of their in exchange for their freedom, or not build up a strong enough case to actually defeat the state, the feds, whoever is um, charging them in this criminal matter. So basically, people are being held in jail in cages, having not been convicted of a crime, and the only reason that they might have to sit in jail awaiting a trial is lack of money, lack of resources. Yes. And I just want to highlight this includes innocent people. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're accused of a crime, oftentimes it has been argued that people deserve to be there. But in the eyes of our constitutional rights, we are supposed to be considered Innocent. It is the burden of the accuser to prove guilt. Mm -hmm. But the that posture that we have taken in America is that we we treat the accused as if they have already been convicted, and people's lives are essentially falling apart. Mm-hmm. Why they're confined to these cages, you're not able to attend work. So my question to your listeners is how long can you be off of your job without anybody hearing from you and stay employed? Mm-hmm. How long can you miss paying your rent or your mortgage and keep your house? How many car payments can you miss without having somebody repossess your car? So it doesn't just become the stress of having to answer and resolve this criminal justice matter. But this is also in the environment where essentially your life is falling apart around you because you are confined to a cage. You mentioned Parchman Prison, and you mentioned your passion 
for talking about drawing attention and awareness to the unique experiences that women have in the criminal justice system. Can you speak to that from both a a personal level uh, as well as what you want us to know about women who spend time in prison? Sure. I think the most shocking part of my incarceration, and I was incarcerated from 2009 to 2014 in Alabama. And so I've been in every women's facility that the Department of Corrections offers in the state of Alabama. So I saw quite a bit. And when I first arrived to prison, it was just very shocking for me to realize that pregnant women go to prison. Mm. And it was actually several pregnant women at the prison. And all I could think about was what type of trauma is it when you're born in prison? Your most precious bonding moments with your child happen in a prison. And so when I talk about the unique experiences of women We have talked so much about the separation of children from their mothers at our southern border. But please understand that we have actively ignored the separation of children from their mothers in our prison for decades. And both are egregious. I think it's also obvious to say that women have very realistic biological needs every month. We have monthly cycles that require Um, sanitation tools such as pads and tampons. Mm -hmm. So the reality of being in a prison is that it's a cement environment. Cement and metal actually cause a woman to bleed heavier and more. Mm -hmm. And so in that environment, in that trauma, you are actually experiencing a a harsher ministration than you would in the comfort of your home. In addition to that, the state of Alabama in particular at the time had allocated that each woman could have 20 sanitary napkins a month. And these are not always sanitary napkins. These are not the best quality. These are like cheaper than your Dollar General name brand (laughs) sanitary napkins. And so... Um, While you're in these harsh conditions of metal and you're bleeding heavier, you're using them like two at a time, Mm -hmm. not to get explicit. And so what was really insulting is to have to go to a man officer and convince him why he should give you more sanitary napkins. At the time, um, we were allowed to be, the inmates at the prison were allowed to be counted in the shower. So during count time, the prison has to resolve that all of the people who are quote unquote supposed to be there are actually there. No one has escaped or anything hasn't happened. It's about three times a day that most facilities take counts to give account for all of the people in the prison. And while we would stand in the shower sometimes, because you never know when count will be called. So it's not like at two o'clock we count every day. You have a general idea, but it could be count called at any time. These prisons also don't have air conditioners, most of them. So if in the state of Alabama where I was incarcerated, it'd be like 95 degrees at two o'clock. So you're taking a shower just trying to stay alive and hydrated. 
And then if they call count, male officers would come through, look at you naked and count you in the shower. Often talk about the male prison experience and mass incarceration through a male lens. And that's important. I don't say that women's unique experiences have to be considered in, in a nod to erase men. But I, but I want to say that there is a comma behind the male experience, and, and it is the woman who has to have her cycle there, who um, has very real biological and emotional needs that are suppressed and abandoned in our prisons in America. These are the kinds of things that I don't think people who have not experienced can fully understand. Yeah. Um, which is exactly why having leadership from those who have been directly impacted is critical. So um, I, I'm just grateful for you that you share your story so candidly and freely. Uh, I, I want to ask one other thing about your experience being a formerly incarcerated Black woman. Can you speak a little bit to the shame about speaking about your incarceration time and and maybe some things that we don't understand as far as what that what the, the stigma that follows upon reentry um, just what that might look like and and some ways that we can be sensitive and compassionate when we're working with this uh, with the community of people who've been directly impacted sure so there there was and still is a lot of shame that I've had to navigate around with my experience with mass incarceration because I am a very, quote unquote, palatable Black woman in the sense that I was, if you look at my stats on paper, I was supposed to be the Black woman who succeeded and went on to do great things. And I should have never entered a prison wall. I come from a two-parent household. Both of my parents have their master degrees. I was a debutante. I went to a magnet school for most of my education experience. So when you look at those things in isolation, these are a lot of the statistics that policymakers uh, quote. Like They quote these statistics saying, these are the people if you just do these things, then you won't raise children or yourself experience prison or criminal justice, our criminal justice system. And that's just not, in fact, true. And so because I'm of a series of poor choices that I made, that I have made a conscious decision that um, money and capitalism was the most coveted thing in my life, I took a lot of risk and chances and in 2009, I was incarcerated for trafficking marijuana in the state of Alabama. And the shame in that experience is more than anything, anything that has happened, like what, how difficult it is for me to get housing, my challenges getting a job, was the shame of having to face my parents. Like two people who have sacrificed and loved and poured into me the fact that I disappointed them is the shame that I will carry for the rest of my life. Because for those five years, when their peers' children were getting job promotions and getting married, I was in prison. And my mother explicitly told me, she said, there is no, you have given me nothing that I can brag about to my friends. 
And that was the fuel <laughs> that drove me when I stepped out of those prison walls to put my life back together. And everything that I'm able to accomplish, I look at my parents and I'm like, are you proud of me? And that that shame that I'm experiencing, I have heard from the voices and stories of so many people who have been impacted in the justice system, where they have told me about before they ever violated any laws of this land, how we as a society did not protect them as children. We did not put them in adequate education systems. We did not give them access to healthy food. We left them in homes that they should have been taken out of. And then these these children with this trauma and shame grow up and try to figure out how to provide a life of dignity without much guidance, direction, or support. It is very difficult to be poor and be Black or be Brown in America and cultivate a life of dignity. And so that shame that we carry is not just from the experience of incarceration itself. I cannot drill down, highlight that enough. But often what I have witnessed and what I testify to is that it is a lot of broken people in prison who were overcome with shame. And that's how they were able to end up in those circumstances. Some of them innocent. Some of them may have committed the crimes that they're accused of and other crimes as well. But what is our responsibility as a society for the people that we allowed them to become? How did we fail them before they failed us? Brittany, how do you stay hopeful? I, I will say that one of the things that I admire about you the most is your ability to not only inspire those of us who want to get involved and be a part of affecting change uh, at the local level, but your the hope. I, I have I have sat with you and listened to you and been under your leadership in meetings and in direct action campaigns. I have marched, we've marched in protests together um, at this point. But what I know about you is that you are a not just a woman of faith, you are that, but you have a remarkable well of hope. And I want to know where that comes from. Yeah, Um I would definitely say my faith, family, and community. And, you know, I just want to clarify, I'm not a perfect woman. And the ramifications of my incarceration have left me riddled with anxiety, anger, and shame that I've really had to figure out how to navigate. And my story is one that I've heard from many other people who've been in the criminal justice system, just like after having to have your life be the agency of your life, the responsibility, the decision-making taken away from you from a period of time, like how do you heal from that? And that is where my hope comes from. It's what sustained me through my experience. Number one, first and foremost, is my faith in my, in my higher power, in the most high God. I give all... <laughs> All of my gratitude solely to my my higher power, because that is what sustained me when I couldn't sustain myself. But it's also about having a community of faith, of faithful people, too, who speak hope into my life. 
we all go through periods where we feel like we can't intervene or intercede for our own happiness. And I encourage everybody, no matter what their faith system is, is to have people in their life who will sow in into them, who will speak life, who will speak hope into them. And for me, especially, I have to give a special shout out to Black women. There is something amazing about Black women. And when I say Black women, I mean Black trans women, um, feminine Black women, masculine Black women, whatever. Just Black women as a whole have spoken so much life and wisdom and given me so many tools. It was Black women who introduced me to mindfulness. Tina, you introduced me to spin class, which has been like a sanctuary for me. And all of those tools have been little bits that have been a part of my holistic healing. And the last thing I will also say about community is just having people to stand up for you and speak for you. One of the things that was really valuable about this experience is that I was sentenced to 20 years in prison. And I served five years, but I was also given a split sentence, which causes you to do the rest of those 20 years on probation. And if you violate probation, you go back to prison on a straight 20. So even when I came home in 2014, I carried a lot of anxiety about that amount of time still looming over my head. So even though my body was free, my mind and my spirit still felt confined to the legal system. And so it was my mentor, Amber Goodwin, and at the time, my boss, Edwin Robinson, who went back to court with me and asked my judge to um, terminate the rest of my probation. And they did. And that's how you show up for people. It's not just about being involved in the policy making, knowing who like your local decision makers are. That is important and that is dope. But also when you look in your own intimate circle, where are the opportunities for you to show up and support people in ways that you don't even know what that means to them? Can you be a character witness? Can you show up for jury duty as a person who actually could listen impartially and give the give somebody a fighting chance as they're battling with the state for their life? Can you volunteer? Can you hire somebody who actually has a criminal record? What is your agency in your own sphere of control where you can show up and be a champion? Thank you for giving us practical ways that we can influence outcomes for people in our communities um, that we care about, people in our families that are impacted by the legal system. Um, I am so grateful that you are a part of my community. I would love to end our time together by asking you, can you share with us a joy moment that you've had over the past week or, or, or just in general, what brings you joy? How do you find joy in the work that you do? Joy, the joy that I find in the work that I do is the connection to people. See, the connection is the opposite of the shame that I'm defaulted to feel. And shame makes us repeal away from community and hide and close down. But the connection to the people is God within itself. 
It's connecting to the divinity that exists within them. And so it is just me giving back some of the grace that has been given to me. When I listen to people, when I use my resources to help people, when I affirm people, I am just re-gifting the ways that folks have shown up and modeled God in my life. And that is what brings me joy. And it also brings me joy to think about my eight nieces and nephews Mm. and and the world that I am trying to create for them. I I honor the work of my ancestors and their investment in this world through slavery, through redlining, through Jim Crow, through the crack era in the 80s, through the Vietnam fight. I honor the work and agency they put in their era and in their time so that 2020, this could be my reality. That as a Black woman, that I could be the decarceration manager for the largest faith-based organization in the country. That is because of someone else's sweat, blood, and tears that got me to this point. I stand on their shoulders proudly. And I am commissioned to do more work so the generations that will come will even be better. So there will be a Black woman president in America so that the Congress can represent more of my ideas and thoughts. So that our prisons won't be filled with the talent and genius of black and brown incarcerated bodies. It is my absolute honor to represent for the most high. And I do it to the best of my ability. Well, I have absolutely seen and felt the God in you and just the way that you have embraced me and loved me. And I have witnessed the way that you embrace and love the people that um, you are responsible for in, in this work. So I'm just grateful for you. Thank you so much for coming on and allowing um, us to have this conversation and, and share with everybody. Can you one more time tell people where they can go to get more information about criminal justice work, whether on a national level with Live Free or on their local level, any um, websites you can refer people to, and how can people follow and stay connected with you? Sure. Well, Tina, I just want to say I love you and I appreciate you for living, using your platform to educate people and just give them an authentic voice. It's so much trash in our media now. So I just want to celebrate Black women in particular who are doing this very important work. But yes, I definitely want to invite people to invest, volunteer, and support and promote the work of Faith in Action. And they can be found, and that is faith like prayer, like believing in something strongly faithinaction.org and livefreenational.org is the particular campaign that I work for at Faith in Action. And we can be found on all social media platforms. We can be found um, on our website as well. We encourage people to join our mailing list. My personal social media is Ms. Britt BMW, M-Z Britt, B-R-I-T-T, BMW, and that is on Instagram as well as Twitter. And I I enjoy um, posting all type of social justice things, family values, and ratchetness. So I absolutely hope 
people like to laugh as well as be woke. Yes, and you you make me laugh. We get to have a lot of a lot of moments together, and that you you just fill my heart and you fill my life, and you've meant so much to me. Thank you for being on our podcast, and we will be sure to put information about Brittany on our show notes and on all of our socials so that people can uh, connect with you and follow you, see what you're doing and reach out to get more information. Thank you so much, Brittany. Absolutely. Thanks, Tina. And now following up with our Black Spotlight of the Week, I want to reference an organization that Brittany mentioned during the interview, and that organization is Color of Change. Color of Change is the nation's largest online racial justice organization, and you can find out more about them if you go to their website, colorofchange.org. You can also follow them on social media. They are engaging in the work of racial justice in a variety of ways that includes criminal justice, culture change and media justice, voting freedom and democracy, tech justice, right-wing politics and white nationalism, and economic justice. So I invite everyone to follow them and see how you can join that movement and get involved with Color of Change. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Racism. 